Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 17, we read, But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. Well, since we're in the midst of the season, and we're all talking about football, you know that in the game of football, there is a genre of offensive plays known as misdirection. Misdirection plays include reverses and counters and options and trick plays and play-action passes. You see, football is a game of aggression. And the idea behind a misdirection play is to get the defense moving one way, then suddenly attack in the opposite direction. The unexpected shift in the point of attack is intended to catch the defense off guard and make them unable to tackle the runner. It's often a winning strategy. That's why defensive players are taught to maintain their position. A linebacker or a defensive end has outside containment. He doesn't want to let anybody get around him. The kickoff team is supposed to run down the field in their lanes. Safeties are to keep the receiver in front of them. You see, if a defensive player gets sucked in too far or comes up too quick, if he over-pursues, and leaves the place on the field he was told to occupy, it doesn't matter how good a player he is. He's not going to be skilled enough or fast enough or strong enough to make up the lost ground. A team gets beat because a player fails to remain where the coach tells him to be. And this was the problem for the Christians at Corinth. These believers love the Lord. Formerly mired in sin, they'd been forgiven freely and fully. They were clean and pure in Christ, a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Corinthians had received blessings untold, and they were enjoying their spiritual windfall. This church had even been the beneficiary of spiritual gifts. Think of the Corinthians as a talented and energetic football team. Yet they were getting beat time after time. They were losing the game because they lacked discipline. They failed to hold their ground and play their position. They kept getting set up and sucked in by the enemy's misdirection. You see, the Corinthians had failed to grasp one of the first principles in the Christian life, and that is to stay where you're called. Play your position. Another way to say it is bloom where you're planted. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul has been discussing the subjects of marriage and singleness. And apparently, the Corinthians were approaching marriage like flies on a screen door. 
In other words, those on the outside were trying to get in, while those on the inside were trying to get out. Single folks wanted to get married, thinking that marriage would enhance their Christian life. And married folks wanted to be single again, assuming that celibacy and singleness would make them more spiritual. Neither assumption was true. Paul's point was for them to remain where they had been called. If you're married, even to an unbeliever, God has a reason for your marriage, your godly example, your access to God will sanctify your children and your unbelieving spouse. It puts the members of your family in the unique position for God to work in their lives by you being there. And if you're single, there is a purpose for your singleness. You can be singly devoted to God's work. The day may come for a single person when it's God's will for them to marry. And a situation can arise when a married person finds themselves single again in the will of God. But until that day comes, God's will for all of us is to remain where we have been called. Paul states this basic premise in verse 17. He says, but as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. Paul is saying that this is a lesson that he's taught in every church. This is a universal principle for all believers. Paul's thoughts here apply as much to us today as they did to the Corinthians in the first century. For we too need to bloom where we've been planted. Now I want us to work our way through our text this morning, and I want us to notice three points along the way. Paul is encouraging us first to clarify our calling. Second, to then specify our concern. And third, to glorify our God. Clarify our calling, then specify what should be our concern, and then obviously to do all that we do to glorify God. Now first, we all need to clarify our calling. Remember when the Corinthians, they came to Christ, a volcano of change erupted in their hearts. Instantly, they were transported from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Forgiveness flowed from the fountain of grace. Their parched lips drank deeply of God's joy. This all pointed them in a brand new direction. Peace filled their hearts. Festering wounds were healed. Emotional shackles were broken. Love flooded into their relationships. Jesus had turned their world topsy-turvy. It was to these Corinthians that Paul would later write, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. But what does that really mean? How far does that newness go? The changes I noted occurred inwardly. But does following Jesus change our circumstances in any way? Does it alter my status or stature or station in life? You see, the pressing issue in Paul's day was circumcision. Under Judaism, circumcision was a sign of God's favor and choosing. It was a badge of honor. And this created a great controversy in the early church. Some Jewish believers in Jesus insisted that if a Gentile wanted to be a Christian, he first had to become a Jew or, in essence, get circumcised. 
And I would suppose that there were some Gentile believers who assumed that Jews who became Christians should ignore their Jewishness and live as if they were uncircumcised. Both schools of thought assumed that Christianity caused a change in one's physical stature or one's social status. That spiritual transformation, that transformation that occurs in Christ wasn't enough. That being a Christian required changes in a person's circumstances also. Paul says to that, no way. In fact, he writes in verse 18, Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not be uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. In other words, you've been saved by Jesus, but don't change your circumstance. In essence, Paul is saying God intends for Gentiles who come to Jesus to still be Gentiles and for Jews who come to Jesus to still be Jews. Becoming a Christian does set off seismic spiritual changes in our hearts, but in terms of our earthly circumstances, nothing really changes. Jews stay Jews and Gentiles stay Gentile. Here was the bigger question facing the Corinthians. What effect does being in Christ have on being in this world? How does my status with God impact my station in life? Does a new start go beyond just a new heart? The Corinthians might have read, all things have become new, and then thought, yeah, but the day after I became a Christian, I woke up on the same cheap mattress in the same rundown house, Next to the same boring, snoring spouse, I looked in the same cracked mirror on the wall at the same wrinkled mug, drove the same gas-guzzling beater to the same dead-end job to work for the same unappreciated boss at the same lousy wage. Lord, what do you mean all things have become new? I felt new when I was saved on Sunday, but I feel pretty much the same come Monday. When you came to Christ, you might have thought, if God gave me a brand new start spiritually, doesn't it stand to reason that he'll give me a brand new start physically and vocationally and relationally and maybe even financially? I can hear someone asking, Pastor Sandy, if God makes all things new, why doesn't he expunge my criminal record? Surely he'll have my creditors write off my debts. Won't he void out all those old grades and give me a new crack at the GPA? I mean, if I'm getting a brand new start, why should I have to tote around all this old baggage? When the Corinthians read all things have become new, perhaps they thought, well, God, I'd like to start with a new wife, maybe a younger model. Or God, I'd like a new husband, one with a lot more income than this one. Or how about some new children, Lord, maybe of the obedient variety? Or God, I'd like a new job where I'm appreciated and compensated. You know, as kids, we used to play a board game called Life. At the start of each game, each contestant gets a car, $10,000 cash, and their choice of a career and a salary. Don't you wish that's how it worked in the Christian life? God started you out with a new car, $10,000 cash in your pocket, and your choice of a career and a steady income. Hey, that might be how it works in the game of life, 
but it's definitely not how it works in the Christian life. You start wherever you're at when you became a Christian. Some of you began your Christian life with a wrecked car, with $10,000 in debt. And you not only lacked a job, but you had few possibilities of getting one. Rather than change your circumstances, God used your circumstances to continue to change you. Think of it this way. When God builds a new life, he demolishes the old house, but he keeps the same parcel, the same lot. Jesus constructs a testimony by his grace, for his grace, on the very same lot, in the very same neighborhood, in the very same surroundings that were created by your sin and rebellion. God changes us amid the reminders of our past. He creates in us a new life in the shadow of our former failures. God builds a new character under the stigma, perhaps, of a bad reputation. Rather than transform your circumstances, God transforms you. And then he uses that new you to alter and improve your circumstances. Don't wait on God to change your surroundings and make things easier for you. As a Christian, you need to start where you're at. I'll never forget Scott. He gave his life to Jesus and was gloriously saved. Came into Calvary Chapel, opened his heart to the Lord. The changes were obvious. They were immediate. The problem, though, was with Scott's occupation. He was a beer distributor for Budweiser. In fact, he drove a company van, had Budweiser plastered all down the side. I'll never forget, Scott was too embarrassed to park in the church parking lot. When he came to church, he parked way down the street, and he walked all the way down the street before he came into church. One day, Scott asked me what I thought he needed to do about his job. I thought for a minute, and then I remembered this passage, and I'll never forget telling me, I said, Scott, you need to be the best beer distributor for Jesus you can be. That's what Paul's saying here. I knew that over time that would become more and more problematic, and it did. Eventually, he sought a new job. But in the beginning, he needed to start living the Christian life right where he was at, right where he was called. This is what Paul is telling the Corinthians. You see, this is where Christian discipleship begins. You play the hand you're dealt the job you got, the house you're in, the spouse you're with. That's where you begin to live the Christian life. As Paul puts it, wherever you're at in life at the time you're saved, that's where you're called. That's where you need to start walking with God. I love this paraphrase of verse 24. It reads, friends, stay where you have been called to be. God is there. Hold the high ground with him at your side. Hear again those words. God is there, right there in the mess that you've made, right there in the pain that you're in. God is there. He's there with you. Don't ask out. Don't seek a change of venue. God wants to prove that he's right where you're at. This is why Paul wants us to clarify our calling. But then he tells us that we should specify our concerns. You see, usually our concerns revolve around the elimination of our problems or maybe our evacuation from what's uncomfortable and unpleasant. I mean, how can we possibly be happy in what has been such miserable conditions before? 
And usually we manage to kind of squirm around and work our way out of our bind. The problem, though, is that so often all we do is really just swap one set of problems and difficulties for another set of problems and difficulties. Again, this is what Paul is saying about marriage. You know, singles think, oh, if I were married, I'd be happy. While married folk are thinking, oh, to be happy and single again. Paul is saying it is a false notion to ever think that your marital status is a determinator of your personal happiness. This is why he writes in verse 27, Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Why? Because Paul knows that real, lasting happiness has nothing to do with the change in your circumstances. I'll never forget the little girl who was telling her mom the story of Snow White and Prince Charming. She described how he arrived on a white horse and woke her up with a kiss. The little girl quizzed her mom, and she, she said, And mom, do you know what happened next? Mom smiled and said, Yes, honey, of course I do. They lived happily ever after. The little girl said, Oh, no, no, no. They went out and got married. You can go out and find a wife. Or you can go out and find another one of them for that matter. But that's not what's going to make you happy. Only Jesus can meet the deepest needs of our heart. Trust me, our soul was created with sweet tastes that only Jesus Christ is rich enough to satisfy. And the same goes for the new job or the nice car or the prestigious position or the updated wardrobe or the financial freedom or the new set of friends that you're seeking. I'm sorry, but as Jesus told the woman at the well, you will thirst again. In fact, whatever earthly thing it is that you've been seeking, that you're convinced, you've convinced yourself is going to make you happy, you need to write above it in your mind's eye these words, you will thirst again. Oh, it might slake your thirst for a time, but trust me, you'll thirst again. This is why Paul writes in verse 19, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God this is what matters. Living in a right relationship with God is what's going to produce happiness in your life. This is why we need to specify our concern. Our top concern, what really matters, is not a change in our circumstance, but it's living in a right relationship with Jesus. Circumstances won't make you happy. But here's what they will do. They will build endurance. And they will forge character. And they will strengthen your faith. And this is why God wants us to remain where we're called. Start where we're at. Bloom where we've been planted. Because in doing so, he uses the rough places to smooth out the edges. This is why Paul says again in verse 20, Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Realize when we're too quick to opt out of difficult circumstances, we only circumvent our own spiritual growth. We sometimes short-circuit our spiritual usefulness. Have you ever thought that God has you where you are so you can be broken, so that you can be sanded down, so that your faith can be stretched, so that you can be pruned and polished? Hey, if that's the case, then stay put. Scott Mitchum is a treasure hunter. 
He's retrieved gold coins and jewels from the ruins of sunken pirate ships in the Caribbean. But lately, Mitchum is mining an unlikely treasure that he's found at the bottom of Lake Superior. He's pulling up hardwood trees that sunk on the way to sawmills over a century ago. These trees have been preserved in the low oxygen, icy waters. The underwater deep freeze and the years of curing has produced extremely high-grade, fine-grained hardwood. Mitchum sells his maple for $42 a foot. Because these logs have stayed where they were put, they have developed incredible value. And you see, you and I will do the same if we'll learn to bloom where we're planted, if we'll stay where God has put us. Why is it that all too often our concern is to escape our circumstances? It happens for different reasons. Sometimes we just get restless or bored. We won't change just for the sake of change. And so we move. We change cities or we change jobs or we change churches. But in reality, we go nowhere. At other times, we're lured away from the place we've been called by carnal goals. Oh, we'll make more money over there. Oh, she's prettier and sexier than my wife. Or he takes more of an interest in me than my husband ever does. Hey, you need to wake up. Don't think that the grass is greener. That's just an illusion. Stay put where God puts you. At times we seek a change because we think it's going to be the quick fix. Fear overwhelms us. We get scared. Rather than trust God, we take a shortcut. Oh, you need to be careful. Satan specializes in shortcuts. I know folks who took a shortcut only to discover that it was the long way around. Remember the words of Jesus, broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. God's way is rarely the easy way, but it always proves to be the better way. You know, for years I wanted to move. I wanted to sell my house and move my family to another location. My next door neighbors were driving me nuts. I think they were both nuts. I was surrounded on one side by a yapping dog and on the other side by an elderly lady who hated my kids. I think she was schizophrenic. But I'm telling you, God wouldn't let me move. I would pray, Lord, please, please let me move. Every time I prayed, God would answer, Sandy, stay where you've been called. And I did. I fought hard to be content. I tried to be a good witness to both my neighbors. And then one day I prayed. And God said, Sandy, you've been in Egypt long enough, friend. It's time. I'm going to move you to the promised land. I put my house on the market the next day. It sold in a week. A week, mind you. I ended up in a great place. But I believe it was because I was willing to stay put until God said I could move. You know, I learned this lesson years ago in a funny way. One morning I was on my way to work when I pulled up to the intersection of Old Rosser Road in Hugh Howell over in Tucker. My car stalled out right at the intersection. I got out. I tinkered with it for a while, but to no avail. And in the terminology of this morning's text, I was going to remain where I was called, like it or not. That's when a DeKalb policeman pulled up behind me, pulled his car up behind me, and he offered me some shelter while I waited on the wrecker. 
I spent a half hour sharing Jesus with that DeKalb cop. It was amazing. Later, the fellow came to our church not knowing that I was the pastor. Again, we were reunited. God put me in his life for a time. And here's what I learned. What I had interpreted as being stalled was in reality being called. Don't you make that mistake. Sometimes staying put feels like being stuck. But this is where God teaches us faith. By remaining where we've been called. Listen to author Mike Iaconelli on the meaning of real faith. He says, faith is not the way around pain. It is the way through pain. Faith doesn't get rid of the opposition. It invites it over for dinner. Faith doesn't give you the winning point at the last second. It ties the game and sends you into overtime. Faith doesn't give you the solution. It forces you to find it. Faith doesn't teach you at the moment. It teaches in retrospect. Faith doesn't provide a net to fall into when your fingers are about to give way as you hang suspended over the cliff. Faith gives your fingers the strength to hang on just a little longer. In other words, faith doesn't do anything when it's doing something. Do you understand this point? Don't trust God to bail you out when God is using the trial to build you up. Don't believe that God is going to provide you an escape when he's actually using that very situation to reshape you into what he wants you to be. As Mike puts it, faith doesn't do anything when it's doing something. In his text, Paul encourages us to clarify our calling, to specify our concern, and then finally, to glorify our God. Rather than ask God to alter our circumstances or to remove us from our circumstances, Paul says that we should be open to how God wants to use us in our circumstances. You you may not have considered it, but maybe God knows He actually has us where He wants us to be, where we can do the most good, where we can bring Him the most glory. Do you really want to glorify God enough to stay put, to stay right where you're at? Among the Corinthians, there were believers married to unbelievers. These Christians felt trapped, stuck in a relationship void of spiritual depth and fulfillment. The believers saw how Christian couples prayed together and grew together and ministered together. And these believers, they would cry themselves to sleep at night. Oh, what a joy it would be to be married to a fellow Christian. But Paul asked them in verse 16, he says, For how do you know, O wife? whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Don't you know you may be the very answer to the prayer you've been praying? You're the one that's key to their salvation? We bellyache about our circumstances while God is waiting to use us in our circumstances. God may have you in that difficult marriage because He knows you are the only way He's going to be able to reach your spouse. In verse 21, Paul is teaching the same principle but using a different scenario. He says, Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. See, many of the first Christians 
came from the ranks of slaves. Slavery was rampant in the Roman world. And Paul didn't want anyone to think erroneously that God had sanctioned slavery. That's why he says, if you can be made free, rather use it. If a slave can earn his freedom or find some loophole, then by all means, he should do it. But at the same time, he shouldn't think that he has to be free because he, before he can start growing spiritually or before he can be used by God. No, the principle is to start where you're called. Again, our station in life shouldn't be our primary concern. A slave who is a Christian is spiritually free in Jesus. A freedman who's a Christian is actually the Lord's slave. Whether you're a slave or free, your priority is to live for Jesus. Paul puts it in verse 21, do not be concerned about it. Don't make slavery the issue, make Jesus the issue. Certainly, we thank God for courageous Christians who came along later in history and did make abolishing the institution of slavery an issue. They worked in harmony with God's providence. At the right time, in the right place, they stood against a terrible evil. Yet there were slaves throughout the centuries who expressed just as much courage by remaining where they were called and making the most of the situation. Paul's point is that if we believe we're in the place that God has called us, then we need to cooperate with our circumstances. Paul says to the Roman slaves who know Christ, if God opens a door for your freedom, by all means take it. But if he doesn't, don't be bummed out. In a spiritual sense, a Christian is nobody's slave. You belong to Jesus. You've been bought at a price. A believing slave should never see himself as a slave of men, but as the Lord's freedman. God will take care of him and use him despite his earthly circumstances, even if those circumstances are as horrendous as slavery. And you see, this is the key. To remain where you've been called, you've got to know to whom you belong. We can't stay in the difficult place without being confident that God is with us. Remember this. If you're not confident in whose you are, you'll be overwhelmed by where you're at. If you're in what might be considered an enslaving situation, you've got to know up front that you belong to Jesus. You might be working for the man, for the company out there. But in reality, you take your orders from Jesus. Don't forget it. You might be married to an unbeliever, but really, you're the bride of Christ. You might be picked on by your peers, but actually, you've been picked by the hand of God and called to be a light in a dark world. Don't forget who you are in Christ. See, keep in mind, we're in the tough place, not because we've got to be, but because we have been called to be. If you choose to be where God calls you, even though it's hard, you're not the victim, you're the victor. If you believe that God is there in the midst of your situation and you're waiting on Him to reveal Himself, then you become an overcomer. Recall Jesus on the cross. He remained where he was called. He could have climbed off that cross. He told Peter he could have called legions of angels to deliver him, but he didn't. He was free to do as he pleased, but he was a slave to the will of God. He was committed to the glory of God, and so he stayed put. Jesus wasn't a doormat. He became the door. 
And His obedience won our salvation. See, Paul wraps up our text here by repeating his premise for a third time, if we didn't get it yet, in verse 24. He says, Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. You see, if your goal is truly God's glory, then you'll, you won't delay. You won't put it off. You'll start to glorify Him right where you're at. I talk to people all the time who are lured by the glamour of going overseas as a missionary. They want to win the pygmies for Jesus. They start out by making plans to go to Africa to share the gospel. But they have never gone next door. Wait a minute, you're going to go to Africa and you haven't even gone to your neighbor next door? The place to start serving the Lord is right where you're at. If you can't do it in Lilburn, man, don't try Liberia. I, I love this poem. Do what you can, being what you are. Shine as a glow worm if you can't be a star. Work like a pulley if you can't be a crane. Be a wheel greaser if you can't drive a train. Be an oar if you can't be the sailor. Be a needle if you can't be the tailor. Be a broom if you can't be the sweeper. Be a sickle if you can't be the reaper. In other words, start where you're at. Glorify God where He's got you right now. And as you're faithful, trust me, He'll open up more doors in your future. Remember the demoniac from Gadara? Demons had possessed his heart. They had crashed his mind. He had run naked and hid in the caves along the seacoast. The man lived like an animal. That is, until he met Jesus. Jesus drove the demons from the man, set him free, restored his sanity. When the townspeople found him, he was sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind. I love that. What an amazing transformation. We're told in Luke chapter 8, verse 38, Now the man from whom the demons had departed begged Jesus that he might be with him. And who could blame him? It seems only natural that this former demoniac would pack his bags and go with Jesus and become a full-time follower of his Lord. But Jesus told him, Return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. In other words, you don't have to move locations. You don't have to change your circumstances to be a full-time follower. Jesus wanted him to follow right where he was at. And this is the lesson for us. Bloom, begin to bear fruit wherever it is that God happens to have you planted. Let me close with a saying. I think it takes great guts to stay where God has called you. I think it does. I think it takes courage to bloom where you're planted, to trust in God's providence. It's not easy to forego comfort and security, to stick it out in a prickly place. But realize, you're not going to be in your current situation forever. God is at work in your tomorrows. You see, He has us in certain places at certain times, but then He nudges us on, He moves us on. Your trial right now, like all trials, it isn't permanent. I like the old lady who said, my favorite verse is, it came to pass. I'm so glad it didn't come to stay. It came to pass. My question for you this morning is not about your tomorrow, but what about your today? What about right now? Will you cooperate with God today 
Will you hunker down where he has you right now? Will you let him use you where you're at right now, today? You see, clarify your calling. Specify the real concern. Then pledge yourself to glorify God despite your circumstances. In light of eternity, our trials and troubles are so short-lived. The potter's wheel spins, but for just a brief moment. We only have a few hours to let God mold us and shape us into the people He desires us to be. Once we're on the other side, it'll all be worth it. So, stay in the place where God has you. Bloom where you're planted.